It's October 1st. My name is Connor Tapp, and you are listening to the 24-7 Sports Morning Blitz Week 5 Recap Edition. Here to help me run through the most consequential results of the week that was is 24-7 Sports National College Football writer, Chris Hummer. Chris, how's it going, man? Doing well. Thanks. It was a crazy weekend of college football. I'm excited for uh, Week 6 coming up. The first game we're going to talk about, I don't know if it was crazy necessarily. There was only one touchdown scored between the two teams, and it was a trick play, uh, a touchdown pass from Florida wide receiver Kadarius Toney. And the seven points Florida gained on that play was all they would need to beat Mississippi State 13-6 to in the first iteration of the Mullen Bowl. Yeah, it's kind of it's actually kind of crazy that Felipe Franks wasn't the one throwing the ball because you could argue he played the best game of his career. Uh, in Starkville this weekend, and that's a big reason why Florida won. And you you really have to give it credit to Dan Mullen. Uh, there was no shortage of pettiness by Mississippi State fans in Starkville, uh, from ice cream flavors being named different things at Dan Mullen's favorite stops to uh, fans booing the guy that led the Bulldogs to nine consecutive uh, really strong seasons. But Florida looks like it's going to come back pretty quickly under Dan Mullen and probably going to get lost in the shuffle, but this is super disappointing for Mississippi State, a team that legitimately had college football playoff hopes entering the season and at least one first-round draft pick and Jeffrey Simmons in the defensive line, and they've just kind of looked uh, hapless on offense, and a big part of that is Nick Fitzgerald just can't hit an open receiver to save his life. He's super inaccurate, and it's really, it's really hurting the Bulldogs. Yeah, two weeks in a row, Mississippi State has just been completely shut down. Kentucky last week and then Florida this week. Um, Some serious questions about Mississippi State going forward. And on the Florida side of the things, I mean, this wasn't an overwhelming performance, but it was an extremely competent performance on the road, which I think is something that Florida fans have been missing uh, competence on the road or at home over the past several seasons. So a uh, really nice win for, for Dan Mullen, getting things, getting things off to a good or back on a good track after falling off a bit with the loss to Kentucky though. We'll talk about Kentucky a, a bit more uh, down the line here, but uh, maybe that loss isn't so bad after all. Um, but do we think that Florida is in the mix for like top? Definitely not ready to go toe to toe with Georgia. But are they in the conversation for the second team in the in the East? I think so. I think. I mean, we saw that Kentucky might be slightly better than Florida just because of the head to head result. But I thought coming into the year that Florida would be a nine or ten, maybe an eight to ten win team by the end of it. They returned more production than anybody in the East in terms of uh, experience. And Dan Mullen's a really quality coach. You knew that that offense would get better. And I think it's, I think it's really notable on defense, just how quali- how good Todd Grantham has been on that side of the ball in terms of coaching people up. It wouldn't surprise me a bit if Florida finished second in the East. Virginia Tech 31, Duke 14, the Number 22 Blue Devils have their perfect season spoiled by 332 yards passing and three touchdowns from Ryan Willis coming off the bench uh, to replace Josh Jackson, who uh, broke a bone last week in the loss against Old Dominion. Uh, Really impressive bounce back win. And Justin Fuente, quarterback whisperer, I I, it's just amazing to see, uh, you know, no matter what the situation is, he finds a way to 
get competent quarterback play. It's really incredible. Yeah, and it doesn't. I, I can't imagine this looks great for David Beatty because uh, Justin Fuente essentially took Kansas's leftovers and turned it into a 300-yard performance against a top 25 team. So Justin Fuente, obviously one of the best young coaches in the country, and continues to prove that. And also, can we just talk about how good Old Dominion must be for uh, this to have happened to Virginia Tech a week after uh, kind of lo- getting boat raced a little bit by ODU, and they come out and beat a top 25 Duke team. Yeah, and Old Dominion took ECU down to the wire this week. And I know ECU's not very good, but uh, still would have been an impressive win for Old Dominion. Michigan State 31, Central Michigan 20. I am just really selling all of my Michigan State sock, and I, I don't know, I, I imagine they climbed in the rankings just because they won this week, but they just do not seem very good to me. Yeah, it it almost seems like Michigan State thinks the season starts in October when Big Ten play really gets going, because this team's looked really listless so far. Struggled with Utah State, obviously lost Arizona State, Bailey beat Indiana on the road and then really struggled against Central Michigan. This was a game for most of it. Like Central Michigan was up early in the second quarter on Michigan State. And I Mark D'Antonio is one of the better coaches in the country. I think we all know this, but this is the second time in three seasons where you kind of just uh, scratch your head a little bit about the product that Michigan State's putting on the field. And it makes even less sense considering all the production that Michigan State brought back this year. And uh, that Big Ten East that we thought looked so difficult coming into the year doesn't quite look as tough as it did uh, maybe in August. Yeah, I, I mean, as bad as Michigan State has looked, though, I, would it be a huge surprise to anyone to, if they somehow managed to beat either Michigan or Ohio State seems unlikely at this point. But you, you could see them doing something weird against Michigan, I think, especially with Michigan uh, struggling a little bit against Northwestern. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I mean, I wouldn't want to count Michigan State out in the long term. Even on Michigan State's bad year, they almost beat uh, Michigan at home. And that was that season uh, the Wolverines arguably should have been in the college football playoff, judging by how you kind of uh, factor into that JT Barrett run late in the fourth quarter uh, in that game in 2016 between the two teams. Michigan State's always a tough test, and you can never really count them out, but I certainly wouldn't uh, thrust them into playoff consideration or anything at this point. Um, Oregon 42, Cal 24. The Ducks go on the road to get a nice Pac-12 win against a ranked opponent. Uh, Forcing five turnovers is the big difference in this game. Possible situation where you let one loss become two after that heartbreak last week against Stanford, but uh, a good sign for the Pac-12 12 being taken seriously as a play as as a team looking to get a team in the playoff that Oregon kind of stabilized after after that loss to Stanford. Yeah, no doubt. And I I would just as an aside real quick, this Oregon's defense was one of the worst in the country two years ago. And Jim Levlet's kind of completely turned that unit around. Uh you can argue that Oregon's run defense was one of with maybe 10 best in the country right now, and it's really making the difference. Obviously, people talk all the time about Justin uh, Herbert and that offense, but Oregon's playing excellent on defense. And, yeah, I think uh, that really helps the Pac-12's perception. And right now, you could make a pretty strong case of the four best teams in the uh, Pac-12 all play up north with Washington State, uh, Washington, Oregon, and Stanford. 
it's going to be interesting to see how those kind of teams beat each other up as the season goes along and if somebody can kind of come out of this reasonably unscathed. Number 18, Texas 19, Kansas State 14. Chris, your Longhorns getting their first win in Manhattan since 2002. Every every Saturday I go into the office and next to our boss, Trey Scott, and he uh, has very wild emotional swings during Texas games. And <laughs> I was a little bit worried that I was going to get deprived of my weekly treat of witnessing that when Texas got up to a 19 to nothing lead. But uh, fortunately, they let Kansas State back in this game, and I got to see Trey freaking out uh, for about a quarter and a half. Um, But, you know, (laughs) when you go on the road and play Bill Snyder, I guess the result is all that matters, right? Yeah, and as an aside, there's nothing better than Trey freaking out in the world. I think he uh, does it so (laughs) passionately. But, uh yeah, it's 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 a really tough place to play Manhattan, Kansas. It just is. Whatever you want to call Bill Snyder a wizard, what be it, uh, Texas earned a good win there. Hadn't won since 2002, as you said. And this is a program that's really struggled to show consistency since uh, the turn of the decade. Uh, Texas, this was Texas' first four-game winning streak since the 2013 season, I believe. And stringing together wins, especially on the road, against a well-coached team is huge. Uh, you could certainly poke holes in Texas right now. Kansas State had a uh, really botched uh, end of the second quarter touchdown pass, not gone awry. Uh, Kansas State would have won that game. Uh, and the Texas offense obviously stalled considerably in the second half. But Texas is playing better as a whole. And at least for two and a half quarters there, Texas looks like what it is as a top 25 team. And a potential fringe contender when you talk about the national picture this year. And uh, going into the Red River rivalry game, it's going to be interesting to see what Texas has. The Kansas State side of the story is a little bit less sexy, but uh, I I was encouraged to see uh, Kansas State play well in this game because part of me was kind of starting to worry, like, is is it time to start being seriously worried that Bill Snyder has stayed like a year too long and that this is going to go south in a hurry. Uh, and when Texas was up nine, 19 to nothing, I was seeing some tweets out there, uh, other people wondering the same thing. And uh, But uh, Kansas State makes a quarterback change, and I know there was a lot of behind-the-scenes fighting. I think uh, this Delton guy was Bill Snyder's pick, and they uh, brought him on in for Skylar Thompson, and then Skylar Thompson eventually comes on and plays quite well uh, and gives uh, gives Kansas State a chance to come back in this one. So it'll be interesting to see what Kansas State does going forward, but obviously the big story is Texas going into the Red River rivalry next week. Um, number 14, Michigan, beats Northwestern 20-17. to 17. Uh this score was at one point Northwestern 17, Michigan 0, and it looked like uh, the Wolverines were in serious trouble. Um, but Karan Higdon is really good, and they, uh, the Wolverines kept giving him the ball, and that worked out quite well for them eventually. Uh, 115 yards rushing for him and two touchdowns. But uh, a little bit disappointed in that I thought Michigan had really turned a corner uh, the past couple of weeks, and now it seems like some some more of the same old struggles that we saw in the disappointing Notre Dame loss. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna jump all over Michigan for this one. College football 
unless you're Alabama, it's one of those weird sports where teams just don't play that well from week to week, from time to time. And I think that was kind of the case. Uh, you catch Northwestern, a team that's kind of struggled early in 2018, but they were coming off a bye week. Pat Fitzgerald's one of the better coaches in the country, and they had an excellent game plan for Michigan in the first half. And I think you really saw kind of Michigan struggle with that, but they rallied in the second half. And I think you have to give that defense, especially a lot of credit for hanging on. If there's something I'm really worried about in regards to Michigan, it's Shea Patterson just really looked off on Saturday. I think that's the guy that you're really counting on to elevate that position moving forward for Michigan and make the difference. And, and some of the closer games Michigan's played this year, Patterson's looked just off. He was missing throws that I've seen him make, uh, in high school and, uh, kind of camp settings very easily. He's got a really smooth motion, but he kind of looked like he got a bit frazzled on Saturday and missed some easy throws. And if that can get corrected, I'm not too worried about Michigan coming out of this, but it's always tough in college football to measure uh, a game like this against Northwestern on the road. But I wouldn't worry too much about Michigan coming out of this one. Number 13, UCF 45, Pitt 14. Uh, Pitt, not a good team, but they are an ACC team. And so UCF and their rare opportunity to play a Power 5 team this season needed to beat the tar out of the Panthers, and they certainly did that. 328 yards passing and four touchdowns for Mackenzie Milton, and your Knights are still undefeated. Your defending champions, yeah. I should say. Defending national champions. Right. Say that loud and proud, Connor. <laughs> but... uh yeah, I think this is a. I mean, this is only, this is UCF's only Power Five opportunity of the year, just because of the cancellation of a game that they had early in the season due to weather. It's the only chance they had to show it, and I think UCF did what it needed to do. Uh, people are going to point out that it's Pitt, but I, I wrote about this in College Football Overtime this week. UCF's numbers, if you stack them side by side to what uh, Penn State did against uh, Pittsburgh early in the year. Like extremely similar. Uh, UCF actually averaged more yards per play. UCF totaled more yards, and its defense uh, kind of showed to be about the same level as Penn State's against Pittsburgh. Obviously, there are mitigating factors. Uh, one game was taking place in Pittsburgh, and the other game was taking place in Florida, and a rivalry game is a little tougher to contend with. But the fact is, UCF played... UCF played Pittsburgh just as well as Penn State played Pittsburgh, and if you're trying to separ- if you're trying to evaluate a team like UCF, I think you have to at least look at that result and consider UCF a little more strongly for bigger bowl games than you would have before. Because we've seen this program have success, uh, continued success on a lot of levels, and this was just another example of that. West Virginia 42, Texas Tech 34. The Mountaineers get out to a 35-10 to 10 halftime lead, and then Texas Tech makes a comeback. But the Red Raiders starting quarterback, Alan Bowman, leaves the game in the first half with an injury. And then his backup, Jet Duffy, throws a pick six that derails the comeback effort late. And that was actually the only points that the Mountaineers scored in the second half was that uh, touchdown return. Uh, but nevertheless, an impressive win for the Mountaineers, and they keep on trucking along and staying undefeated. Yeah, no doubt. And I actually, you have to come away from this game pretty impressed with what West Virginia's defense did. Uh, I know they didn't exactly shut down the Red Raiders, uh, but they slowed them down considerably. Uh, Just two weeks ago, Texas Tech put up almost 700 yards of offense against Houston. And this week they put up in the mid-400s against West Virginia. And that's a huge step for the Mountaineers. 
Uh, there were a lot of questions about that defense coming into the year and that defensive line uh, led by a, US, by a USC transfer tackle is really making a difference. And that secondary is opportunistic and made a couple plays on with interceptions that really swung the game. So as a Mountaineer fan, I'm sure you're pretty encouraged coming out of this game with the way the defense is playing. Washington 35, BYU 7. And I don't think BYU ever had any business being in the top 25, but I am heartened to see Washington finally play a game where it looked like uh, it, it dominated team in in the manner that you would expect a team that is a playoff contender to do. And the, the scoreline is absolutely reflective of how big a beatdown this was. Uh, not a whole lot else for me to say about it. The Huskies were just really, really dominant here. Yeah, and Jake Browning became uh, became Washington's all-time passing leader in the game. And he also nearly set an FBS record for uh, completion percentage. I think going into the fourth quarter, he was like 20 for 21. He ended up throwing one extra in completion, and he finished the game 23 for 25. But that was the best all-around game Washington's played all year. And if that Washington team shows up every week in the Pac-12, that's a team that could easily run the table and get into the playoff. Auburn 24, Southern Miss 13. Uh, this one was rain-delayed for quite a while, or weather-delayed at least, and uh, just another, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that I watched a single down of this game, but just another game where Auburn just doesn't really beat a team that it should be beating by a lot, by a lot, and it and it, it gives me some concerns about how they're going to hold up when they, uh, you know, hit hit the home stretch of this SEC schedule. Yeah, Auburn averaged 2.7 yards per carry. The offensive line is like, bad, 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 that's bad. awful. Awful, and you're not going to, like you said, you're not going to hold up in the SEC if you continue to play like this. I know I know it's hard to get up for a game like this sometimes, and I know the weather really plays a role in something like this, and it's hard to come back after a delay and the field was wet and everything. But this Auburn team, after a really quality win early in the year against Washington, hasn't looked the same. And that's a that's a pretty big concern for Auburn fans moving forward because you, this is a team that you've constantly seen trip up at times they shouldn't to opponents they shouldn't, and this is kind of looking like one of those potential nine and three, eight and four Auburn teams that should have been a lot more than what it is. Uh, Gus Malzahn's got some real work to do before the schedule gets tough. Notre Dame thirty-eight, Stanford seventeen. I asked. Our guy Tom Loy, uh, his opinion on Ian Book. Like, was this performance against Wake Forest last week for real? Should we expect this going forward? What's the deal? Where's this Ian Book guy been? And he said he was expecting him to have a big game against Stanford. And I was like, all right. I, I, but should I? Is this some Homer stuff? Like, what's going on? But man, Ian Book was really good against a really good defense in his third career start. And man, Notre Dame is really impressive right now. Yeah, never, never doubt Tom Moy is never. what we've learned this week. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Ian Book was great. Uh, I don't know if Stanford's an elite defense, but it's a very good one. And Ian Book looked transformative. I think that's the only way to put it in terms of Notre Dame. He makes that offense so much better. Ian's not the athlete brand one bushes, but he's mobile enough to make a lot of those design runs and option plays that Notre Dame ran before work. And then he's 100 times more accurate than uh, Brandon Wimbush. I'm sure that math is not correct. He's probably only about 20% to 15% more accurate. But it's indescribable how much of a difference that makes for an offense. Uh, you're not facing seven or eight-man boxes anymore. 
you can stretch the field vertically and your receivers can feel like they can, if your receivers feel like if they win, they're going to get the ball and you could not. And that just didn't happen under Brandon Bush and Notre Dame looks so much better. And if they can get past Virginia tech next week on the road, this is a Notre Dame team that I can see easily running the table. Man, I know Virginia tech bounced back nicely against Duke, but if their secondary are having any of the same problems that they're having, they had against Old Dominion when I forget what the number was, but it was in the four hundreds of passing yards that Old Dominion hung on Virginia Tech. Then the thought of what Ian Book is going to do to them is that's uh, going to be very interesting to see. Um, How oh, fun is college football, by the way? That we're talking about Ian Book just dominating teams potentially five weeks into the season. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oklahoma 66, uh, Baylor 33. Uh, the ceremonial one drive suspension for an Oklahoma quarterback is becoming one of my favorite traditions in college football. Uh, Kyler Murray was late for practice, missed the first drive. Um, he, uh, came, he, he played two plays, I believe last year, uh, for Baker Mayfield when he had a one drive suspension. Um, so, uh, Kyler Murray is on the other end of it this time, but accounts for seven total touchdowns, throws for 432 yards, just absolutely set Baylor alight and maybe his most uh, statistically impressive performance of the season so far. Anytime you can get that touchdowns is greater than incompletions number popping, I'm, uh, that's, getting, that's getting my attention. I'm just glad to know in Norman that grabbing your junk on the field is the same equivalent of showing up late to class. Oh, that's yeah, that's what, what the suspension was about, wasn't it? I forgot about that. Man. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, old Baker seems like so long ago, but yeah, Oklahoma, Oklahoma is going to be fine on offense. Kyler in that system is just as effective as Baker ever was. Maybe a little different, but Lincoln Riley fits that system around him perfectly. I think really the thing coming out of this game for Oklahoma is kind of its shaky pass defense that bit him on the butt last year, especially late against Georgia. And they gave up 416 yards passing to Baylor. I know a lot of that was kind of garbage time, kind of throwing it around the yard extending the game yardage, but coming against Texas next week, a much better offense and a much better team all around. That defense is going to have to be a lot sharper to come out with the win. Yeah. LSU 45, Ole Miss 16. I really thought LSU or I thought Ole Miss might make this one interesting and maybe even get a win, but boy, was I wrong. Cause that defense is bad. Uh, Joe Burrow has a breakout statistical performance, uh, 292 yards passing three touchdowns. But, uh, I don't, do you, I, is this a breakout? Do we think this is a breakout for Joe Burrow or is this just a reflection of how bad the rebels are defensively? I think, Yes, maybe. Yeah. On both of that. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Uh, Joe Burrow looked... I don't think Joe Burrow's looked bad all season. I just don't think he's looked good. It's uh, he obviously looked better. Managery, like doing, doing all the little things, but not being super impressive with his arm and stuff. Yeah, and he's he's a great... Game manager probably even like too harsh for a label. He's a super smart guy. He does everything that you want to do a quarterback well. He's the epitome of a coach's son. But he hasn't really – when you're looking for a national championship contender, in most cases, unless you're Alabama and their defense, you're looking for somebody who can elevate the team. You're looking for somebody that can propel an offense forward. Joe Burrow, at least from what we've seen so far, isn't that. But maybe when you're LSU, that doesn't matter because LSU's defense against what is a 
really, really, really good Ole Miss offense looked great. They shut him down, and LSU's got the framework, at least defensively, to win a national title. I think a lot of it's going to depend on how far Joe Burrow and the offense can take him. But LSU, if you're just looking on strictly that side of the ball, looks like a championship defense. And I think we saw that again on Saturday against Ole Miss. One of the games of the season so far, Ohio State 27, Penn State 26. The Nittany Lions absolutely dominant in the first half, but as they were settling for field goals instead of touchdowns, you kind of had this feeling, oh boy, this is going to come back to get them later. And boy, did it, because Ohio State figured out the offense, only 92 total yards in the first half, but just really came to life in the second half, 270 yards for Dwayne Haskins and three touchdowns, and Ohio State pulls it out late. Yeah, and this is the second year in a row Ohio State beat Penn State in a game where it had little business beating Penn State. I think James Franklin said it really well after the game last night when he said this is the difference between an elite program and a great program. Ohio State is an elite program right now, and Penn State's a great one. And the reason is Ohio State finds a way to win games like this. I think we saw in the field that the talent's rather similar. The gap in the Big Ten is closer than it's been in a long time between those two programs, and Penn State's very close to kind of pushing its way into the upper echelon in college football. But there's a reason why Ohio State's dominated that conference so much since Urban Meyer arrived, and it doesn't look like it's going to change right now. I know people are going to harp on the way Dwayne Haskins played or how well he did not play coming out of this game. I know people are going to harp on how much the Ohio State offense struggled for large portions of the game. But in that environment and that atmosphere for Ohio State to go and pull that game out speaks volumes for this team. And this is the people are probably going to forget this is the second time this season Ohio State's come back from a double-digit deficit in the second half against a ranked team. And that amount of grit can take you really far on the college football schedule. And Ohio State looks, again, like the class of the Big Ten and be a shock to see anybody else come out of that conference. But Ohio State by the year's end right now. A really incredible performance from Trace McSorley in a losing effort. 286 yards passing, two touchdowns, but 175 yards rushing. Just a really interesting game plan from Penn State. It seemed like they were running the ball with design runs from McSorley at times where it seemed it seemed like an illogical thing to do, and it just kept working and kept working. And a really incredible performance for him. But, of course, that uh, kind of uh, change-up style of play calling kind of burned the Nittany Lions late. They run the ball on, I believe it was, uh, was it fourth and five in a zone running play that kind of gets stuffed, and a lot of people dissatisfied with it uh, from a decision-making perspective late in the big game from James Franklin. What is your take on that? Yeah, with the way Penn State ran the ball for most of the night, I, I can't fault him on the call, but I'm with probably the masses here, as well as Trace McSorley who played. Put the ball in his hands and let him make a decision, whether that's to pull it down and run, if there's nothing there, to throw, make a pass and make something happen. He's Trace McSorley, if he had won that game, would have been squarely in the middle of the Heisman conversation. I think he's just one of those college football playing dudes that everybody in America likes to watch play. And Trace was on his game last night, and the ball should have ended in his hands, not somebody else's. So I can understand the criticism. Clemson 27, Syracuse 23. The Tigers were facing a 10-point deficit in the second half, and without Trevor Lawrence, who exited the game in the first half with concussion-like symptoms after taking a big whack uh, on the sideline in the first half. 
And um, Clemson just handed the ball to Travis Etienne, and he did the rest. 203 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, they needed all four quarters to get it done, but they, they pulled this one out. Yeah, isn't, isn't college football amazing that at halftime there were people legitimately asking Dabo Sweeney if he would take back <laughs> Kelly yeah. Bryant, a dude who had transferred <laughs> Oh, earlier in the week, and Dabo was like, "Yeah, I love the kid." And college is just great, but you have to—you really have to admire Clemson for kind of finding a way to win that game with essentially their third-string quarterback on the field. Travis Etienne looked like one of the best running backs in college football on Saturday, and Clemson's offensive line kind of took control when it needed to after struggling early in the contest, and then. Clemson's defensive line gets a lot of credit, but I'm not sure if it gets enough. That unit was simply dominant late in the game, and that group covers up for a lot of issues in that Clemson secondary. I know Clemson secondary is probably lauded pretty frequently because that defense doesn't give up a lot of points, but against better teams and better quarterbacks this season, namely Texas A&M and Syracuse with Eric Dendry and Kellen Mond, that Clemson secondary has really struggled, and that defensive line covers up for a lot of things. Clemson should feel lucky to come out of this game with the win, but when you're marching towards the championship, unless you're Alabama, these are the type of games that you have to win, and Clemson did find a way to do it. Georgia 38, Tennessee 12. Uh, by the, Looking at the scoreline alone, you might think, oh, ho-hum, another dominant Georgia victory. But last two weeks, I don't know. Are, are, are we seeing some warts in this uh, Georgia team uh, that maybe – I don't know. I'm thinking maybe now if they go head to head against Alabama, it's not going to go so great for the Bulldogs. Yeah, I think we're I think we're seeing a Georgia team really kind of sort through uh, what they are. That defense remains very good, but it's not without its flaws. I think it's one of the worst. Georgia creates less tackles for loss than almost any team in the country. That's a big issue. That's something Kirby Smart constantly worries about, and it's been a problem early in the year. And I think you see that show up sometimes. But offensively, the Georgia running game, while dominant on paper, looks out of sorts at times. I really expected DeAndre Swift to kind of be the guy for Georgia this year, be a Heisman contender. And he's had really weird nights where he just isn't very productive. Elijah Holyfield's had those nights. Uh, James Cook has looked great at times and really inconsistent at others. And Georgia's offensive line, which a lot of people really lauded coming in the year, has been good, but not great. And then I don't, Jake Fromm is what Jake Fromm is, he's a really, really efficient quarterback, but I'm not sure how often he's going to win you a game, kind of like the discussion we had earlier in regards to Joe Burrow. I think, don't get me wrong, uh, Jake Fromm is a better quarterback than Joe Burrow, but it's kind of the same kind of idea. And this Georgia, I don't know, it's just been an odd year, like you said, and we're going to see what Georgia has moving forward. But with as soft of a schedule as the East provides you, I guess outside of if we think Kentucky provides a real test and maybe pull it down the line. This Georgia's team's going to have some time to figure things out until it plays LSU in a couple weeks, I suppose. Speaking of Kentucky, they beat the South Carolina Gamecocks 24-10 to to stay undefeated. Uh, four turnovers by South Carolina, including one on their very first possession of the game inside their own 10-yard line. Kind of did the Gamecocks in here. Um, and a big win for Kentucky. Yeah, well, it's great for Kentucky, and that defense has looked excellent all year, but I just want to ask the South Carolina grad on this podcast how he feels about Jake Bentley a couple weeks in the season. Uh, not great. 
if he seems to have the Benjamin Button disease, uh, he played great as a true freshman and it has gotten progressively worse. And uh, despite his supporting cast getting better and better. So it's a real head scratcher. Three interceptions in this one from him. And it is just not very good right now from a, uh, you know, son of a coach. He is just not making very good decisions. And uh, you've, We've seen him play better, so you'd think that, you know, once somebody demonstrates a certain level of competency, uh, you know, that's a skill that they have somewhere inside of them. It's just a matter of how do you unlock that on a consistent basis, and right now they really seem to be struggling to do that. Um, Pretty decent performance defensively for South Carolina, I thought, but, you know, when, when you're turning it over four times on the road in the SEC... That is, uh, you're you're really putting yourself behind the eight ball. Has Jake Bentley gone from the next face of the SEC quarterback room to probably one of the four worst quarterbacks in the SEC in three years? Uh, maybe. I mean, uh, maybe. Uh, it's definitely a possibility. I, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, he's, he's, I, th- I still think he has it somewhere inside of him. For some reason, we're just not getting it. Um, he is working with a new offensive coordinator this year, so maybe that's part of it. It was an offensive coordinator promoted internally, mind you, but uh, I, I really don't know. I mean, at a certain point, you have to look at the production and say, okay, well, that's what he is. Um, we'll see. I mean, the thing is, he it seems like it feels like he's been around forever, but he is still just a junior, or so his college career is only slightly past halfway over. So, uh, I, I mean, we're assuming at this point that going pro after a junior season is totally off the table. Um, so we'll see. I mean, maybe he, it comes back on in his senior season. It certainly seems like it's not going to be there during this year. But, yeah, I mean, at this point, hard to argue he's not bottom four. Yeah, he threw I – I think it's super interesting. His freshman year he played in seven games. And he threw four total interceptions. And then through three games against three FBS teams this year, he's thrown four total interceptions already. It's just, yeah. It's, it's very odd. It's not good. And his uh, dad is the running backs coach, so it'll be politically complicated if the need arises to demote him. And uh, I don't really know if there are any great options behind him. Uh, Michael Skarnecchia is a guy that's been in the program a long time, but he was a two-star Spurrier recruit. And I don't really know if that's somebody who can be realistically relied upon at this point. And uh, to carry on Joyner, a true freshman, that's maybe a little bit more of an athlete. So I, and South Carolina might just be stuck with trying to figure out how to make Jake Bentley work for the rest of the season, which we'll see how that goes for them. <laughs> and, and by the way, I understated how bad Jake Bentley has been this year. He actually has six interceptions against three FBS opponents. Yeah, I, I thought that so. number seemed low, but I was willing to trust you. Uh, uh, Miami, 47, North Carolina, 10. We had not seen much of the turnover chain so far this season, but it came out in full effect on Thursday night as uh, the Hurricanes forced six turnovers in this one. Um, and uh, Miami uh, struggling a bit early, uh, but also notably not a huge not a huge night from Nikosi Perry, but uh, notable that he did f- finally seem to accept the reins from Malik Rozier in this one. 
Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing for Miami, at least from that perspective. They have their new quarterback, Mark Rick and John Rick, their quarterback's coach. His son had uh, pretty steadfastly stood by Malik all off season, but I think it was pretty clear early on Miami's ceiling's not what it could be with a better passer under center. It's kind of the uh, Notre Dame theory with a less proven passer behind them and Nicozy as a guy that the staff has long thought highly of. He just has never really put it all together, but they're rolling with that talent early and it's made a difference. Plus uh, the turnover chain came out six times, which is never a bad thing. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that much gold is often flashed in Coral Gables, but I'm glad to see it happen. And uh, their new mascot or their new turnover chain looks a little bit like the Mighty Ducks mascot from the first movie, and I'm a really big fan of that. So, <laughs> Alabama 56, Louisiana Raging Cajuns 14. Um, uh, so, yeah, not a whole lot worth talking about in this one other than the fact that Jalen Hurts played in his fifth game and so will not be redshirting this season. Yeah, well, I think there is something to be said about my or Alabama essentially covering in the first half, being up forty nine nothing, and then managing not to cover <laughs> because they gave up two uh, second half touchdowns and missed a couple field goals. But that's a classic Alabama move when you remove your starters. But yeah, <laughs> shout out to Jalen Hurts for handling the situation and a very difficult one at that in the most classy way possible. Uh, I you can debate all day whether it's the right decision for Jalen Hurts. Only he can tell you what that is for himself. He's going to get his degree from Alabama. He very well could win another national championship. And then come December, he, like his dad said earlier this year, will probably be one of the biggest free agents in college football history. He's not going to lack for suitors. And I think everybody just has to applaud the way Jalen handled all this situation. Uh, one other note uh <laughs> If you look really deep into the box score, you'll see that Alabama did miss two field goals. They are on their second kicker this season, Joseph Bulovis. Um, so, you know, unlikely, it seems, that any Alabama game this season is going to be decided by as few as three points. But, you know, and, and with Alabama, hashtag Alabama kickers being such a recurring thing, it's it's always something to keep an eye on, I guess. Yeah, and isn't it crazy that Nick Saban just can't find a reliable kicker? It really it's is. It's insane. Bizarre. Like you you would think Nick could just walk into any living room in the country and be like, Hey, you're gonna kick it out of Alabama for the next four years and you'd be set. I just haven't found one and uh I'm sure Alabama isn't gonna play in a lot of close games, but eventually if you Nick Saban does not get this sorted out, this will either cost Alabama a game later in the year or really come close to doing it because you can't overstate the importance of the kicking game in college football. Coaches can tend to try to ignore them all they want, but kickers matter, and uh, Alabama's going to have to get it sorted out. That's going to do it for our Week 5 recap. Ideally, I, I would have planned to not end it on talking about Alabama and Louisiana Lafayette, but that. That's the situation I backed myself into. Um, so the Morning Blitz is a daily podcast. So we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning with the biggest college football story of the day wrapped up in a tidy 10 to 15-minute package. You can subscribe to the Morning Blitz on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.